0: Our scripture this evening is found in Revelation chapter 12, and I'll read the entire chapter. Revelation 12 at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which he is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Lord, we pray that you will give help now to what is said and to what we hear and give discernment, wisdom, and the ability to take your word to heart, that it may work in our hearts and minds what is needful in encouraging us in our faith. Hear our prayer and give help now, for we are in your need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was uh, contemplating what to preach on, I was thinking of Palm Sunday. You probably dealt with that this morning. I don't know. But uh, there are also palms mentioned in uh, Revelation, and I was looking over that text a little bit. It got me to thinking about Some other passages in Revelation. And I was thinking about the uh, very graphic images that we find in the book of Revelation. And another thought came to me. um, This time of year, one of my guilty pleasures is occasionally listening to uh, or listening and watching an opera uh, called Cavalleria Rusticana. And it's, uh, set in a Sicilian village and, uh, typical plot, uh, violence, infidelity, those sorts of things. But, uh, that's, I suppose, part of the guilty pleasure. But the, the, uh, uh, part that might, uh, stick with some of us Presbyterian types is that there is a wonderful musical interlude where uh, you see this procession, this uh, parade-like uh, occasion, where uh, Easter is being celebrated, and uh, an image of Christ is being carried. And there's mariolatry all over the place. And you, you say, "This is great music. Uh, should I be feeling that way?" You know, because of the the images, and uh, that question. Uh, what about images? Um, why is it that we frown on images of Christ? Uh, I think if you were to reduce it to a simple, uh, argument, it, it has to do with our concern about idolatry. Idolatry comes in at least two forms. There's uh, affectational idolatry. That is, we love certain things more than we should. They challenge our, uh, love of God because we can put them, uh, as being too important. And so, uh, we're willing to compromise or bend the knee the wrong way. And so that affectational uh, idolatry is what we often hear about in sermons about idolatry, uh, that our selfishness is part of idolatry. Just about every sin can be connected to idolatry in that sense. Uh, uh And idolatry is connected to covetousness by Paul in Colossians 3. And uh, I suppose you could connect just about every sin to covetousness in that way, too. But there's another form of idolatry that we could call uh, a more mental or conceptual idolatry, and that is when we make an image of God according to our own vain imagination. And that's something that you see dealt with in Romans chapter 1. But how is it possible for us to escape using images in the way we think or talk about God? I've done some sermons here from the Gospel of John, and look at all the I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those are all images derived from creation. And so we could say, is that uh, multiple uh, idolatry, uh, many, many images? It seems to me that it's actually in the multiplication of the images that we begin to see that Jesus is so much more than an ordinary vine or an ordinary door. Indeed, when he speaks of being bread, he says, I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. So we're being asked to uh, imagine something that we have a hard time imagining. True bread that comes down from heaven. I guess manna is the closest thing you... Can get to that. It fell from heaven. Uh, And the word manna means what is it? (laughs) That's uh, part of the mystery of uh, the way in which heavenly things uh, uh, exist and uh, the mystery of God who is in heaven. So the very variety of images that take from created language, created words, bread, doors, shepherds, or on the other side of the shepherd, lambs. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's also the Lion, the tribe of Judah. All of those things encourage us to say, you know, this is no ordinary Lion, no ordinary lamb, no ordinary bread. Uh, And so we don't worship lions, lambs, or bread. Uh, And that's perhaps a, a danger that some have fallen into with the doctrine of transubstantiation in the Roman Church. So it's the very multiple of images that, in some sense, is the safeguard against conceptual idolatry uh there's another thing that uh we find when we get into the book of revelation uh there are paradoxes uh the word paradox is sometimes frowned on because it uh can cause some people to think that you believe that there are contradictions real contradictions in the Bible but uh there are things that may appear to our rational mind as irreconcilable that aren't because they are are perfectly one in God uh there are practical paradoxes though and our Christian life has a certain practical paradox when it comes to the promises of God. Have you ever prayed for something and you felt like, you know, if I just have enough faith, God will do this. He'll spare my loved one from dying, or he'll heal me, or he'll give me a Mercedes Benz, according to the old song. Uh, well, of course, God doesn't answer all of our prayers exactly that way. So we come to sometimes a paradox about ask and you shall receive. Well, what does that promise mean? And if it isn't to be taken very literally, then what is its practical value for me? What about the promises God gives for his providential protection? Not a hair of our head can perish apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. Uh, I guess some of us, the will of the Heavenly Father is that we lose more hair than we thought we were going to. Uh, But Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, These are obviously promises that are meant to comfort us and to keep us from distress. What we find here in the book of Revelation is a church that is, in some sense, really preserved by God. But it's also a church that is in great pain, pregnant, agonizing cry. Uh... And so I have suggested in your outline that we have a kind of paradox that God protects us, but he doesn't protect us from all pain. And again, we might say, I'd like a little better deal than that. Uh Well, it's the way it is. And uh, when people... Uh, if sometimes I've asked them, how are you doing? Uh, some of the Christians will say, better than I deserve. And so we have to put some of these things into perspective. Uh, I'm saying that we're talking about the church here in Revelation 12. One of the uh, images in that opera, Cavalleria Rusticana, is uh, an image of Mary, and they're singing, uh, again, this wonderful melody composed by the uh, opera fellow, Muscani, I think is how you pronounce it, but I'm not sure, uh, called Regina Celi. It means Queen of Heaven. Uh, I think what we have here in Revelation 12 is a queen with heavenly roots, uh, but not necessarily a queen of heaven, uh, we're getting a heaven eye view of the church. And uh, something that I don't know why I didn't notice it before I worked. On this sermon, but verse 12, as I was reading it tonight, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This book is presenting, and this chapter is presenting, I believe the church again, as a heaven-dweller as opposed to an earth-dweller. Because whenever you find that term earth-dweller or those who dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation, it doesn't turn out so well for those folks. Uh, they're among the judged. And so we're looking at the church as kind of a heavenly citizen. Now, I say church. How do I know that the woman is the church? Uh, if Wikipedia is right, the Roman Catholic view is that the woman is sort of three things: Israel, the church and Mary. Uh, but when you read the chapter, how many women are there here? There's one woman. There's one woman, and this woman seems to uh, have roots in heaven, but also roots in the Genesis account, Uh, giving birth, having pain. Bringing forth a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, we commonly view Genesis three: fifteen and sixteen as the first gospel because the promised seed will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, and that of course, is ultimately Jesus Christ, although in some sense those words are applied to the church as well, but certainly Jesus Christ is the one who crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. So, there's really one woman here. And uh, there's one church. Our evangelical friends who uh, have a view called dispensationalism may tell you that Israel... And uh, the church are two absolutely distinct entities that they have not a whole lot in common in terms of the plan and design of God. I believe that's fundamentally wrong. In Acts 7, I believe it's towards the end there. I have the text written down here somewhere. Uh, You can look at it on your own. I think it's in Peter's or in Stephen's um, last words, Acts 7.38, Moses is described as being with the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness. Israel was the Old Testament church. And Mary is born from that church. And the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron is born in the church. You say, well, isn't Jesus eternal? Yes. Uh, but he's the root and offspring of David, too. Root and offspring. I think he's probably the son. That this woman is clothed with, according to the first verse or two there of Revelation 12. Because we are clothed with what? With Christ. We're to be clothed with Christ. And so our uh, insistence on being highly literal in terms of our linear way of looking at things needs to take into account that. Jesus is the one who, from the very beginning, would be the seed who would destroy the works of Satan and Satan himself, and uh, is anticipated already because he already lives and exists as the second person of the Trinity. One church... Now, here on earth, we look around and we say, it seems like there's a whole lot more than one church. Well, we're talking about the church from God's point of view, from heaven's point of view. We are one. There's an old song we used to sing during the 60s, we are one in the spirit. Unfortunately, many times uh, it wasn't. Churches that were singing that, but little groups uh, off to the side in college, which that's fine, a good thing that those groups existed, but they're not sufficient unto themselves. But there is a unity to the church because there's a unity to Christ, a unity of the Spirit. And we are still struggling to see that unity manifested in terms of the outward life of the church but when we uh, hear of christians being persecuted in various parts of the world i think most real christians feel a sense of solidarity and a strong empathy and connection with those who we believe are christians and hope are christians we don't know them personally but Because we're united to Christ, we recognize that there is this reality. Well, there is a great number of images for how Christ is portrayed in the Gospel of John. I would suggest one of the keys to the book of Revelation is that there are a number of images for how the church is portrayed. And, uh, that's one way of, instead of looking at the 144,000 as some elite group, that we ought to, uh, view that as a kind of complete, uh, church that is, uh, given a supplemental picture as a multitude that no man can number. But it's, the number is used, I think, to show something of the fullness of the promises to the twelve patriarchs and to the twelve disciples. There are multiples. There's a fullness. There's a roundness to that 144,000 that suggests completion. And that's a lot of what I think this book is about. God is bringing his church to completion. And in the process of bringing that church to completion, there's some pain. But the pain isn't the last word. The last word is he will wipe away every tear. That's what we're headed for. Well, we have a church with heavenly roots. Besides verse 12, anything else? Well, again. The figure there in verse one is a queenly kind of figure, um, and it, it, clothed with the sun. Uh, the theme that you get as you go through the book of Revelation that earth dwellers are among those who are the condemned. But then there is this interesting reference to the wilderness. Given a place in the wilderness to be nourished. And nourishing in the wilderness don't usually go together, but of course we know that's what God did with Israel. He nourished them in the wilderness. And there was a kind of protection. Protection from Pharaoh's armies, but they were kind of protected when they got swallowed up in the Red Sea. But uh, there is some isolation It's not the most ideal place. There are serpents, but they were protected from the serpents until they went the wrong direction. And so God's protecting hand is not in the most comfortable environment, but it is a place where we are made part of God's camp. With his sentries watching around that camp. Um, That's why I think it is such a, a serious thing when people take the discipline of the Lord and the discipline of the church lightly. Paul talks about giving someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their spirit might be saved. The church is a kind of camp in the wilderness, and outside the camp is trouble. Inside the camp is some kind of real security, and um, I can't promise you that if you come to my city of Baltimore that you'll be absolutely safe. But I do believe that if you're there, and you're there for the right reasons, that nothing can happen to you unless God has a very special purpose for that happening to you. Um, I still remember my third year of college, I think it was, after that, uh, there was a, a ministry in Newark, New Jersey. The uh the summer after, the place had been pretty well burned to the ground in riots. And this fellow had the courage to get, or craziness maybe to gather a bunch of college students uh, together and seek to do ministry in Newark, New York. Nobody was hurt. Nothing happened. God's protecting hand was there. I can't guarantee that it would always work that way because there are Christians who in the course of doing their witness for Christ witness unto death and by their death that Jesus is Lord and that he is faithful. So we have that wilderness Versus an earth dwelling. Wilderness and earth. Yeah, I know the wilderness would seem to be on earth, but it's not the final dwelling place of the church. It's an interim operation. Citizenship is in heaven. Roots are in heaven. Now, there's another passage that I've mulled over. and wondered, what is this business about? The serpent pouring water, river out of its mouth, and the earth opening its mouth to help the woman, evidently ingesting this river. And uh, as I have thought about it and looked it over, I believe we have what some people would call a textual echo. Uh, a mouth that opens and swallows. Those words you can find applied to Korah, Dathan, Abiram, in Numbers 16, where the earth swallows them. Not such a good outcome for those fellows. They had rebelled, uh, seeking to argue against the special authority that God had given Moses basically saying, aren't we all the same here? Let's be democratic about this. Uh, Aren't all God's people prophets? Uh, They were rebelling against God, not Moses. God protected his church, and the earth swallowed them. That's obviously a kind of figure speech or an idiom. But the idea of swallowing is also language that is used in uh, Exodus 15 to describe what happened to Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea, that the earth swallowed them. And so we have one mouth issuing something to harm the church and another mouth swallowing it the way they did Korodathan and Abiram. Um, It is no doubt the case that sometimes the church is better off when certain people are removed from this life. Uh, I'm not saying we should pray for that, although I think we can think of a person that might better not be on earth right now for the well-being of the church and the earth. But if you got rid of all of those people you consider the bad guys, uh, maybe it would be better and maybe it wouldn't. Because ultimately we have a spiritual war here. And uh, Presbyterians were a little bit leery about talking about the devil and demons and stuff like that. Let the Pentecostals talk about that stuff, you know. No, we need to recognize that we're in a spiritual war and you can get rid of the bad guys, the humans, that are really, really bad and we still have a badder (laughs) enemy that seeks to destroy God's people. So I don't... Preclude the possibility that this is kind of a picture of the beginnings of teaching of the abyss that you find referred to in Revelation 20. That, uh, Satan, yes, he sends forth demons, he sends forth deceitful spirits, and he has his little human agents here on earth, and they Maybe under that influence, Paul talks about doctrines of demons, and so uh, when it says the earth swallows, I don't think it's because the earth is so much a a person. We're talking about God who opened the earth for Korodathan and Abiram, and uh, in similar fashion, God can affect the cosmos, the habitation of Satan and his angels. They get cast down to earth, and they're not too happy about it. And then they get further cast down into the abyss, and they're not happy about that. The church has had some respite, some relief over time from the worst things that Satan can do because of the work of Jesus Christ dying and rising and ascending to the right hand of the Father. He is the King of Heaven, not just the King in Heaven, but the King of Heaven. Uh, And so Christ is in utter control of our enemy, and that's why the church enjoys real safety. And if our flesh... Comes under attack, then we are in a similar position as Job was, where God says this far and no further. And He is able to enable us to endure to the end. There is preservation and protection of God's church until. The day that that church is absolutely complete and then it's preserved completely in heaven, not just in the wilderness. And if you struggle with God's promises because you have a really rough situation you're facing. A loved one who's sick or has died a personal tragedy in your life, a relationship that has gone sour. There are so many ways that Satan wants to take those things and to say, God doesn't really love you. If God loved you, you believe he's sovereign, don't you? You're reformed, aren't you? He's in control, isn't he? Then why Why did that happen? That's sort of the challenging side of Calvinism, isn't it? Problem of evil transferred over to why does the church have to suffer? Paul says he believes that the sufferings, the momentary light afflictions that we have now are not worthy to be compared with that eternal weight of glory that lies ahead. You might say, "Well, I could use a little less glory ahead and a little less suffering now," but God knows what He's doing. And many people who, in the course of their studies, would have said, "I'd rather to be be playing baseball right now," but they were glad they did their homework. Later on in life, when they got the job they wanted, it turned out for the better. Trusting God means that we believe that, yes, it's going to turn out for the better, but he's with us right now, and he's proven his love in the past. He's proven his love in the past in John 3.16, that he so loved the world. He so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That's his proof. So when Satan comes to try to say, there's a better way, with less suffering, an easier way. Don't believe it. The best way, the better way, is always in communion with Jesus Christ. And yes, that sometimes means the fellowship of his sufferings right now. But it gives way to the day, the eternal day, when there is no more suffering, pain, and he wipes every tear from her eye. And if you just would recollect, I imagine there's many, maybe all of you, who could reflect back on how God's love pulled you through a tough situation sometime in the past, but you just kind of forgot about it. Treasure some of those memories when God pulled you through so that when... Those hard times come, you can say, you know, he saved me then, he'll save me now, and Satan is my enemy and wants to destroy me, but Christ will not allow it to happen because he is the king of heaven, and I'm part of the queen in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, There are so many people that are suffering right now. Your people. And it weighs upon our hearts and minds. We may wonder, could we endure? Help us to be encouraged to lift up our hearts. To see heaven opened in revelation here. And how those pangs give way to joy, they give way to protection, and they ultimately give way to that everlasting peace that we long for. Help anyone that is here this evening, that is struggling with doubt or concern, that they may not grow weary in well-doing or become offended because things aren't working out as they might desire, but to know that your love is so great that you gave your son to suffer in a way we don't ever have to suffer if we're in him. We pray in his name. Amen.